right, guys, good to be with you today. Um, really appreciate you coming out. <laughs> what an encouragement. Uh, neither rain nor snow nor ice. We're here, and that's pretty awesome. Um, why don't we uh, begin our time in the Word with a word of prayer? Let's bow our heads together. Father, thank you again for bringing us here, for uh, being able to get us here safely in one piece, despite the, uh, the current gnarly situation on the, the roads. We can be together to once again uh, celebrate you, to magnify the name of your Son, and to proclaim your gospel. Uh, bless us, Father. We know you are here with us. We take great comfort in that. Bless also those who are unable to be here today because of, because of the weather. Um, but please give us wisdom and uh, open hearts to humbly receive the truth of your word this morning. May we be blessed by it. May it cause within us a greater affection and love for Christ, that we would be faithful to our King and Savior. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Okay, guys, go ahead and open your Bibles up to the book of First Peter. Book of First Peter. Continue our study in chapter 2. I'll be starting verse 21, and I will read through verse 25. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 21 through 25. Please follow along. For you have been called for this purpose, since Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example for you to follow in his steps, who committed no sin, nor was any deceit found in his mouth. And while being reviled, he did not revile in return. While suffering, he uttered no threats but kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. And he himself bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness, for by his wounds you were healed. For you were continually straying like sheep, but now you have returned to the shepherd and guardian of your souls. May God be blessed by the reading and preaching of his word. So here we are in chapter 2, and as you, guys have, as you guys know, we have gotten into section 2 of the book of 1 Peter. Our study in this entire book highlights what is called standing firm in true grace. Of course, part 1 through a good part of chapter 2 covered salvation, the foundation of true grace. Now keep in mind going forward that just because the primary theme of the first section of Peter, going all the way up to about 1 Peter 2.11, is primarily about salvation and its outflowing implications, does not mean that Peter is not going to keep returning to this theme of Christ's saving work. As another example, throughout this book, Peter will revisit the theme of suffering and will, also, will often tie our understanding of salvation with suffering, and for good reason. The only reason we are able to be saved is because Christ suffered. And that is what we will study in this morning's text. Now we are in first or part two. Submission, the footing of true grace, which sort of describes the way that the church stands in light of God's saving work. Our footing, we want to make sure we're, we're standing straight, that we're standing in the right place with the right posture. And of course, the context of that footing is submission, and submission in really all areas. We've talked about submission to uh, the civil authorities, every human institution, uh, 
Uh, we've talked about even the context last week of, of servants, slaves in a, in a Roman household. We'll get on to talk about the relationships between husbands and wives. But in the middle of it, we have this text, verses 21 through 25. And it talks about our relationship to Christ. And it doesn't say, it doesn't use the word uh, submission in the text we're going to do today. But we have to understand this text within the greater context of submission. And, and a text like this offers huge encouragement to those who perhaps find themselves, especially believers, in less than favorable circumstances, whether under an ungodly government or perhaps an ungodly household. But whatever the case, we do that, we, we, we do those things with certain truths continually in mind, with certain truths that continually undergird our standing wherever we are, wherever we may be called. And so this is a text that offers that. So quick question, how many of you, don't be shy, how many of you catechize your kids? Take your kids through a catechism, whether, you know, Baptist catechism, Hercules Collins, should, every hand should be raised here because we passed them out. But let me, quick show of hands, let me see. All right, okay. Okay, not bad, not bad. The reason I bring that up is because this passage offers us somewhat of a catechism. When we're going through the scriptures, and when we're teaching one another, especially when we're teaching our kids, we're always taking them back to one particular subject, are we not? That is Jesus Christ. We can teach them truth upon truth, but one of the main goals of teaching the scriptures, of teaching truth on any level, young or old, we always bring that truth back to how it fits in with Christ's person and work. And so what this offers is a, is, is a great refresher course for young and old alike. Who is Jesus and what has he done? And that's what we're going to go through this morning. And so verses 21 through 25 offer four important reminders within the context of submission. That's what I want to take us through today. We'll probably get through half of it because I really want to focus very deliberately on verses 24 through 25 next week. There's a lot of rich, encouraging truth in that. And so we will separate that text and leave it to next week and get through verses 21 through 23 today. And I, and I trust that the Lord will feed our souls by it. But remember, this is in the context of submission. And in any event, we want to be focused on Christ. We want to call to mind the things that He has done, even though most of us, again, we, we, we understand that we are not domestics, we are not household slaves. However, we live under, currently, an extremely unjust, unrighteous, ungodly government, pushing through all kinds of ungodly legislation on a whim. And so we have to remember, we have to deliberately call to mind particularly thing, particular things offered in this text so that we understand our footing. Because it does say, submit. Insofar as those laws are righteous, we submit to those laws. However, even when there is unrighteous rulers calling the shots, we still have to say, okay, how do I understand this in the context of the fact that I serve the king of the universe, that I serve the savior of all mankind, that I, that I belong to the one who rules over everything. And of course, we are drawn to verse 21. I think that's why Peter puts it right smack dab in the middle of this section of the text. We always have to view these things, even submission, through the lens of Christ. So, there will be four things that we call to mind. The simple directive is to remember, okay? 
That's our going word. So, in submission, here's the first one. In submission, remember that God has given you a calling in His sacrifice. That is the sacrifice of Christ. So in submission, it's a long one. Remember, or call to mind that God has given you a calling in Christ's sacrifice. That's the first thing. So let's, let's look at this text together. Verse 21. For you have been called for this purpose since Christ also suffered for you. Okay, so let's, look, let's take a look at that first word, for. What's the therefore, therefore, but also what's the for, therefore, okay? So when it says for, therefore, typically we have to look back and see, okay, in what, in what light or what context is Peter continuing in his discourse or in his instruction to his people here? So we would have to look back. What's going on? In light of calling to mind our calling in Christ's sacrifice, we look back to the, these instructions of the previous passage. And basically, the gist of it is this, that we are called to submissively suffer in a righteous manner. When we do suffer for being believers, we are called to suffer for righteous behavior. That is, we are called to suffer for Christ-like behavior. Remember, what does it profit you if you do evil and you are punished for it, if you are beaten, if you suffer severely for it? But he says, if you suffer by doing what is right, and remember, doing what is right will often draw unwanted attention. Doing, doing what is right will often not draw favor from men. Sometimes it will, but many times it will not, especially if they connect the dots and say, oh, you are behaving this way, however honorably, you are behaving this way for the sake of Jesus Christ. Oh, you're a Christian. And of course, that can bring in heaps of persecution, can bring insult, sufferings of, of, of many different colors. But Peter says, if you patiently endure that, this finds favor with God. It is clear that the grace of God, the favor of God, rests upon you. So we're, we're, the instruction that Peter gives here is in that light. And then he goes on, verse 21 again. For you have been called to this purpose, to suffer righteously. That's the purpose in mind. You have called, you've been called to suffer righteously. Of course, this calling, I believe, refers to the, the effectual call of God to salvation. Not just any old call, but a, per, but a particular saving call that reaches His people so that we come to Him and become His people. And of course, His people are described earlier on in this chapter. You know, being living stones, being that spiritual house, being that holy priesthood, royal priesthood, the chosen race, all the things that are described in the passage leading up to the one we are in now. And so the reason that we are called to salvation in Christ, according to Peter, a major one, is to suffer for the sake of Christ. Now, this may come as a shock to some of you. <laughs> you may think, you know, depending on, depending on who you've learned from, and it's very popular teaching even today, I'm surprised that we haven't really moved beyond this and seen it for the, the, the false gospel and garbage that it really is. Some think, okay, suffering, wait a second. I didn't know that suffering was involved in this benefit package of coming to Christ. Most of us didn't sign up for that. We, did, we signed up for the good life, right? We signed up for abundance, the good stuff, the blessings, all the bonuses. We were talking about a particular uh, Christian author uh, this past week. And one of his, uh, you might want to name names, but you know, you'll figure it out. 
And one of the things he says is along the lines of, you know, you may be just four no's away from getting your yes, right? Hang in there because God's going to really bring it to you. So even though you've heard no, man, you might get that yes. I mean, why not, right? You're a child of the Most High God. You have abundance. You are a champion, right? I mean, all kinds of lavish titles placed upon you. Now, in, in some cases, these things may very well be true, but the context is strikingly unbiblical. It is a crown without a cross. It is victory without any kind of suffering. And yet, Scripture is very clear that we are called to suffer specifically for the gospel. Now, I want to add a quick uh, bit of information here. It doesn't mean that all we are going to do in this life is suffer. Yes, we will experience blessings. Yes, God's favor does rest upon us, and we will recognize that in a variety of ways, that God is with us, He blesses us, his, He is kind to His people, He's good, but there will be suffering, no doubt. And chances are in our lifetime it may grow to some painful levels. And of course, we don't like that. We don't like pain. We don't like anguish. We don't like rejection. We don't like the loss that comes with suffering, and yet we find comfort, a lot of comfort, knowing that we are called by God, knowing that the storms of life are not random events driven by chance and coincidence. How do we know this? Right here. If we are called to suffer for righteous living, then we know that there is a purpose behind it. We know that it is not just God allowing these things to happen, but it's God making them happen. He is refining us through suffering, through suffering specifically, and that all of this suffering is appointed for the follower of Christ and is particularly tailed, tailored to you by God in order that you may be more like Him. So in whatever realm we may be exercising submission under no matter how ungodly people, we understand that God has graced us by giving us a particular calling within the context of Christ's sacrifice. If Christ suffered, you will suffer. If the world hated Christ, the world will hate you. So context is important. And as we continue to identify with Christ, suffering will come. Suffering will come. Because as soon as you embrace Christ by faith, you have, been you have become a declared enemy of this world, of this system, even though we recognize that Christ is working redemptively through us to preach salvation to this world, the forces that occupy it currently see us as a threat. And why not? We are more than just believers. We're more than just the church. We are the victorious occupying force telling all men repent or die. And that's not going to go over well with many people, especially those who reject God. In 2 Timothy 3.12, we read, Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. And the most outstanding thing isn't so much the truth of this statement, but look at the beginning. It is this, says, all who desire to live, even if you want to. It's almost saying, like, even if you start thinking about this, opposition is going to come your way at some point. You may not even have developed yet a consistently godly life. You may be immature, but you start thinking in that direction. You start applying the, the word of, of God to all areas of life. You start calling people to repent. You show that desire a little bit. It becomes very clear 
to those with whom you spend your time. If you desire to live that godly life in Christ Jesus, you will be persecuted. But we still draw ourselves back to a purpose that is fulfilled. And what does it say? We have been called for this purpose on the basis of what? Since Christ also suffered for you. Not just that he suffered, but he suffered for you as your substitute. Now you think about this in the context of perhaps being a servant or a slave. That Jesus himself became like a slave so that you could live as a free man. Since Christ also suffered for you. This is the core truth of the Christian faith. This is the truth that we constantly refresh ourselves with, that we always are returning to. This is the core truth of the gospel, the fact that Christ suffered. Remember, big picture, the kingdom of God advancing, right? Taking over. And yet, what truth is central to that, that we cannot ever dispense with and yet is constantly compromised and kind of giving second-class citizenship in our theology, right? It is Christ's substitutionary death. The kingdom of God, this holy house, is built up and is advanced on that truth that Christ suffered for us. And it's amazing when you think of this coming from Peter, that Peter, you know, years removed from walking with the Lord Jesus, has come to embrace this. It's core in his teaching. Now, you read back in the Gospel of Matthew, and Jesus starts talking about the fact that the Son of Man must, you know, be turned, he must be betrayed, turned over to the authorities, and suffer and die. What did Peter tell him? What did Peter do? Yeah, he took the Lord aside because Peter's so wise, so concerned. He says, you know, Lord, this, this shall never happen to you. And now it's become central in his teaching that it must, it's something that must have happened. It was necessary that Christ needed to suffer in the place of sinners as our substitute for you, he says. Christ also suffered for you. And note the, the flow of this. For you have been called, since Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example for you to follow in his steps. He's talking to you. And Christ died for you, not in some general sense. He died for you specifically. When he hung on that cross, your sins, past, present, future, all of your unbelief was paid for. And what that did was that it guaranteed that one day you would come to faith in Christ because he died for you specifically. He suffered a death and condemnation that you deserved. He suffered on your behalf also, not just in your place, but he suffered for your benefit that you may reap all those blessings, all of the grace, all of the honors Christ, that Christ deserved, he gave up to suffer in your place so that you may partake in those benefits, graces, and honors. He suffered also for us, reminding us that we identify with him in our suffering. What a great comfort to know that we never suffer alone. I mean, wasn't this the preoccupation of Paul? Sometimes we wonder what's going on in his mind. You know, but I may know him in the fellowship of his suffering. He just saw there, a closeness, an intimacy in the identification of himself with Christ, especially when he was rejected and suffered. And it is no different for us. Christ suffered for us. And if he suffered for us, 
we know that we have the strength so that we can suffer for His name. Of course, we don't atone for anyone's sin. But now that our sin has been atoned for, and that we are clothed in the robes of righteousness, we can faithfully represent Him in our suffering. Because we have been called to that end specifically through Him, because of His suffering. And so what we know through this passage is that we never suffer in vain. We, we are not to think that God is this meanie who is senselessly bludgeoning his children. Even though we don't like suffering, even though it's painful, it's uncomfortable, we know that it has a particular purpose in mind and that it's all preordained. Some of us may suffer in a more severe manner than others, and yet we know it all has a purpose. It's to make us like Christ. It is to draw us to him so that we identify more closely with him. And it demonstrates the power of the gospel and the power of faith that even though we are assailed with a, with, a, with a multiplicity of affliction and persecution and rejection, that the power of the gospel truly at work helps us to withstand unbelief. It helps us to keep our faith from failing. So that's the first point. In submission, remember that God has given you calling in sacrifice. Here's the second one. In submission, remember that God has given you conviction in His standard or by His standard. So Jesus is our standard. That's the second thing you have to remember. We're drawn to His sacrifice, but we're also drawn to a particular standard of His. So let's read the text again. Leaving you, it says, in His suffering, He has left you an example for you to follow in His steps. Now, doing a little research, this word example, key word, refers to letters that children would trace over in order to learn how to write letters correctly. Now, I'm going through the thick of this right now, practically force my kiddos to write every day. Sometimes they don't really like it, you know. What, 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 what's the purpose of cursive for anyway? You know, we're all typing now with computers. None of us is really into cursive. But no, child, no son of mine will fail to write in cursive. You're writing in cursive. And so how do we start? Because cursive's pretty fancy. So you don't just say, okay, well, look at this shape and try to copy it. No, you start with, with, with particular printouts that you know, follow the dotted lines, trace over the letter, so you train your hand how to accurately represent this letter. So when, you know, you have to write something really hard like a cursive Q or a cursive F or the dreaded Z, practice, practice, practice. You endure it until you master it. But when we write, but like practicing letters, we remember that in, in our submission, we, we have a standard. We always have a standard. What, is, what does a Q look like? What does a Z look like? Well, what does suffering look like? What's the example that we need in order to suffer righteously? We look no further than to Christ himself. He left us an example to follow in his steps. You know, and like our penmanship, we may become accustomed to being quite sloppy at this when we first endure suffering and persecution. And yet we practice it. We grow. We understand that it is part of God's calling for us to suffer. And so we look to Christ. We follow His steps. We follow His tracks. And I would dare say that the footsteps of Christ are unmistakable. There is no 
mystery here. If you want to find the footprints of Jesus, look for the prints with the holes in them, right? Look for the nail marks. That is the, the path we follow. Jesus said, if any man desires to come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. We see this as an ongoing day-by-day commitment, not a come and go as you please, not a half-hearted adventure where we somehow follow Christ as a, at a distance as Peter did and so fell into denying Christ. Even though this is for now the path less traveled, it is the path that leads to eternal life and we call others while we're doing this to also follow Christ by faith and to submit to his lordship. But this is a pattern. It's a pattern of life that is descriptive of the Christian. And I would say on a grander scale, it's a path that is descriptive of the church. Remember, we walk with Christ together, not lonely or isolated. So then we ask this question, well, we know that Jesus is an example, but how is Jesus an example in suffering? And of course, Peter here, as he does often, draws from Isaiah chapter uh, 53, the, the servant, which is, which is a messianic prophecy pointing to Christ's work in his suffering. Now, look, in, look at verse 22. Who committed no sin, nor was any deceit found in his mouth. So there's going to be some overlap here, but Jesus, at least in three ways, demonstrates what that example looks like. They are the examples of character, the examples of commitment, and the examples of conduct. So character, conduct, and commitment. So let's look first at the example of character. Now look at this. This is an example we're supposed to follow, mind you. Don't get too intimidated by the first one. But it is the most important one. What does it say of Jesus? Who committed no sin? Wow, what an example. This is our standard, guys. The standard is perfection. It's never going away. He who committed no sin. And this is, you know, this is this is for our benefit. Yeah, we are called to not sin. We are called to live righteously. And no matter how much we fail, we always have as a standard the one who committed no sin, who is perfect in character. Aren't we aren't we offered that same reassurance in 1 John chapter 2? If any of you does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous one. Jesus Christ, the one who committed no sin, he is always present as our our standard, the standard we always look to. He committed no sin, nor was there any deceit found in his mouth. Now, Isaiah 53.9, write this down, Isaiah 53.9, it says, because he had done no violence, so sin is characterized as doing violence, remember, doing harm to one's neighbor, nor was there any deceit in his mouth. So, Here we have a picture from Peter of Christ's utterly sinless character. He committed no sin, and he was not only sinless when it came to his suffering, but when we look to Christ, we see sinlessness characterizing his entire life. Even though he was tempted by the devil himself, and most of us can't say that. You know, sometimes we're quick to say, oh yeah, the devil assailed me, but we we can say that in a general sense. But let me tell you something. If you were wandering around the Judean desert for 40 days and 40 nights without food, and the devil came to you, hey, here's some stone, turn it it into bread, what would you do? 
What would Jesus do? More importantly, what did Jesus do? Relied on the word of God, right? It is written, man shall not live by bread alone. And I would venture to say that the majority of us perhaps would say, please give me a piece of that bread, I'm starving. And he was tempted by Satan face to face. It has often been said that the devil is out doing far more important things to bother with someone like you. You know, he's, he's doing other things, has bigger plans. And some of us are so quick to say, oh, the devil's doing this or the devil's doing that. And whether or not the devil truly is doing this or that, what we do understand more importantly in all of this is that when the devil did this and that to Jesus, Jesus did not buckle in the least. He remained faithful. He remained unblemished in his character. We find that out in John 14, 30. Jesus says that the ruler of this world is coming and he has nothing in me. He cannot make any kind of accusation that would stick. He's got nothing on me. Sometimes we say that. The devil has nothing on me and he's going to be cast out. I am going to triumph over him. The ruler of this world has been judged. Now, we say, so what? Well, here's the joy in a statement like that in light of Christ's sinless character and perfect standard is that if the devil has nothing on Jesus, that means that the devil has nothing on us. That's the blessing for us. That's the encouragement for us. All who are in Christ can say with the utmost confidence and truth that in him, in Christ, the devil has nothing on me. Why? Because he has nothing on Jesus. Reading on, nor was there any deceit found in his mouth. You know, we, we, uh, we go through life, say a lot of things. You know, we're, from a very young age, we're warned about what we say, how we say it, why we say it. Hey, don't you kiss your mother with that mouth, right? Don't give me any lip, Hey, don't talk to your father like that or you're going to get it. That kind of thing, right? In many, in many Christian households, if we we're applying of, you know, the, the scriptures to our child rearing, one thing that we do not tolerate is disrespect in our, in our children's speech. We put a clamp on it, as it were. We hold them accountable for the things they say. We don't let them shoot their mouths off because we understand the importance of speech, of how we communicate of speaking the truth, of speaking things with love and kindness and in the best interest of others. And many of us, myself included, have said many things throughout our life that we certainly regret. Faithless words, unkind words, often things that we wish if we could go back and never say them, we would do so. Careless words we say without thinking. I mean, if I had a dollar for every wasted word, I'd be really rich. If you're a rich man, said many careless things. And yet, what is our standard? The fact that in all of Jesus' speech, there was never any deceit. We can rely on his words as truth, as life giving. And yet, it is a warning to us just how dangerous it can be for us once we deviate from that standard. In fact, when Scripture testifies to man's plight when it comes to speech, it, is, it can get very descriptive, very, very ugly. In James 3, verses 3 and 8, it says this, Anyone who is never at fault in what they say is perfect, able to keep their whole body in check, as if to say, you know, if you can control what you say, you can probably control anything else. Keep your whole body in check. But no human being can tame the tongue. 
It is a restless evil full of deadly poison. What an indictment on the tongue. In James 1.26, James says a lot about the tongue. He says this, If anyone thinks himself to be religious, oh yeah, we like that. I'm a religious man. I'm a God-fearing man. I'm spiritual. And yet does not bridle his tongue, but deceives his own heart. This man's religion is worthless. It is worthless if he cannot control the things he says. Why? Because out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. What you say will reflect the nature of the inner man, of your heart. And it's certainly what Christ said certainly reflected what was in his heart. Righteousness, perfection, a devotion to God's glory. Everything that is noble and kind and lovely and faithful. We find that in the words of Christ. This caused even hesitation in Isaiah, remember? Woe is me, for I am ruined, because I am a man of unclean lips and live among the people of unclean lips. I mean, Isaiah had to be consecrated. The coal had to touch his mouth so that he was prepared to speak the word of God. But he recognized that shortcoming. Think about this too, all the, not just deception, but all the things that come along with deception, gossip, slander, misrepresentation, even what we could call half-truths, where we tell some of the truth but not all of it so as to mislead. And then we find, of course, that none of this ever had any power over Jesus. Everything that he said flowed from a spotless, perfect character. There was no deceit. I mean, think about our current rulers, our, uh, our constitutionally elected representatives that we esteem and trust with everything in us, right? And then you think of Christ, right? No flattery, no lying, nothing misleading, no, no hidden agenda, some would say. Everything crystal clear, right? Everything clear to those who trust in Him. Okay, clear precise, sometimes even cutting, because that is such is the character of God's Word. You think of uh, especially the Gospel of John when Jesus is about to say something really profound. What does he say? Truly, truly, I say to you, verily, verily, I tell you the truth depending on your version. But he says, hey, what I'm about to say, you can trust with everything. I am telling you the truth. Even those listening to him recognize that. He taught as one having authority and not as their teachers of the law. Matthew 7, 28. That's the closing verse of the Sermon on the Mount. That was their, that, that, that was the, that, that was, that was their conclusion concerning what Jesus said. He has authority. If there is no deceit, there will be authority. Because when you speak the truth, that truth will carry with it authority. John 7, 46, no one speaks as this man speaks. Jesus says of his own words, John 6, 63, the words that I have spoken to you are spirit and are life. He says in John 12, 29, for I do not speak on my own, but the Father himself who sent me has given me a commandment as to what to say and what to speak. Oh, how the church has departed from this principle, right? 
Look at the example of Jesus and what he says. If the, if the church, if preachers, if evangelists, if believers on any level want to be faithful when it comes to speaking and explaining God's word, look to Jesus. Because even Jesus, as the Son of God, said, I do not speak on my own. And blessed is the church who can say the same thing, that we have nothing to say on our own. We have no independent insight. We have no extra biblical wisdom. We have no creative genius that we can add to the simplicity of the power of the gospel message. We don't speak on our own. And that's such a problem today. We just want to say our own thing. But when we do that, what are we doing, guys? We are deceiving. There is deceit in our mouth when we try to supplement the Word of God. Let us stop speaking on our own and let us look to what the Father Himself has given us. He's given us Christ who speaks truthfully. And because of His testimony, we know exactly what to think and we know exactly what to say. And on some, on some level, we could say it's so simple, it's, it's stupid for us to think that we could add anything to improve it. As much as we want to draw people in, as much as we are tempted to want people to love and accept us and think we're genuine and real and relevant, forget all about that. What does the Father say? What does the Spirit empower us to say? It is the words of Christ. It is His gospel. It is His truth. Say nothing more, and for heaven's sake, say nothing less. That's character. That's character. And what Christians say, whether despise or love, should be remarkable in its truth, clarity, precision, and also its purpose. Why do we preach the gospel to people so that so one, so that they may believe and have eternal life in Christ and so that God may be glorified in the advancement of his kingdom. So pretty simple. Simple gospel, simple purpose. Conduct. While being reviled, let's look at the text again. While being reviled, he did not revile in return. Here we come with the words again. And Peter alludes to Isaiah 53, 7. He was oppressed and he was afflicted and he did not open his mouth like a lamb that is led to slaughter and like a sheep that is silent before its shearers. So he did not open his mouth. This word revile, being reviled, he did not revile in return. Pretty, pretty old word. We don't use it a lot. It's pretty archaic, but essentially what revile means is to pile abuse on someone. It's not merely a cheap shot. It's to look them in the face and say things that are insulting and degrading, unloving, and often, and, and often untrue. I mean, it, and it's, and it's uh, very popular now, especially in American society, to claim that you are part of some oppressed class. Some people are oppressed, and of course, we want to bring the biblical view of justice to that. We want to bring the gospel to them. But all over society, it is just popular to claim that you are oppressed. It's all the rage. Demanding some kind of restitution, and I look at the example of Christ and think if anyone had any right to demand restitution, to demand justice, to say, hey, put a stop to this. Do you know who I am? I'm the Son of God. Right? 
I created you. And yet he said nothing. He was silent. He did not open his mouth. And throughout his ministry, constantly written off as a false teacher, even as a blasphemer, and one who even deceives the whole nation. In his trial, his beating, kangaroo court, his crucifixion, he was mocked and spit upon, insulted constantly, even his accusers, beating him with their hands saying, prophesy who hit you? And you would think, wow, if I had the cosmic power and authority that Jesus had, I would definitely not allow people to treat me like this. And yet we're, we, we may revile people in return for some of the most inane, forgivable offenses. We're so thin-skinned these days. We want our restitution. We want our vengeance. We want our payback. And even when they say prophesy who hit you, it's pretty clear from that text that they are egging him on. Do something about it. If you are the Son of God, put an end to this mockery. Do something, Jesus, and we will believe, right? We'll believe you. Take yourself off that cross and we will believe you. I mean, talk about self-control. Self-control on an untold, nearly unquantifiable level. But what do we know about Christ? He had it. He had it to the end. It's this kind of abuse where the urge to defend yourself against your enemies is the greatest especially when this kind of suffering is so unjust, so undeserved. You know, the most, the most righteous, noble, lovely person who ever walked the earth? And here they are treating him like this, with insults, with unbelief, with rejection, with ultimately death. You know, and you think, man, why, why don't, when this happens to us, we, we want to tell them to stop? We want them to have a taste of their own medicine to see how they feel when they're on the receiving end? You know, we live in a world now where man has become so self-idolatrous, so self-obsessed, so zealous for his own justice, so committed to, his, to upholding his sense of value and worth. We see men shooting each other when they get cut off on the highway. I mean, wow, drive on the 25. I mean, it's, we, can get, we can get pretty hairy sometimes. But man, people are angry. But usually they're so angry because They've been offended. They've been, they have felt insulted. And their pride is such that they cannot let it go. But look at Christ's humility. Look at his conduct and be amazed. Be amazed and repent. When we sink to that unbelieving level where we believe that we have to avenge ourselves, where we have to revile in return, when we have to be so self-defensive, because we don't want people to get away with it. We want them to pay. And yes, it is hard. It is hurtful when people malign and misrepresent. But think of Jesus' example. Think of what Jesus did. This isn't hypothetical. Jesus, while being reviled, did not revile in return. So what is that? What's the application? When we are reviled, we do not what? We don't revile in return. Jesus did not retaliate, either in word or Indeed, to the one person who had, we would say, the right and the power to retaliate, to rain vengeance on his enemies. And yet that comes at a later time. But up to then, his mission was to to save, not to judge men, but to save them. You know, there's no person less deserving of this kind of abuse and no one with a greater prerogative to be able to strike back and yet remain righteous. Look at that example. 
And listen to Luke 19.10. The Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which was lost. And so how was he to accomplish that? By suffering for those he came to seek and save. John 3.17 just sort of paraphrased it. But for God did not send the Son into the world to judge the world, but that the world might be saved through him. While suffering, reading on, he uttered not threats. Not only did he return cheap shots or revilings and insults, but he didn't even threaten. While suffering, he did not utter any threats. You know, we've talked about, you know, the last resort to physical force being an option if we can't retreat. But in the normal course of things and sufferings, we look at the example of Jesus. We do not utter threats. And sometimes we do that. We, we threaten people. Why? To get, them, to get them to stop. You know, if you don't quit, I'm going to give you some of this back. We do it to stifle further harm. And yet, even when Peter describes Jesus this way, he's not talking about an isolated incident in Jesus' life, but something that characterized the whole of it, that Jesus did not retaliate. He didn't judge them right then and there. He continued to endure their insults and abuse. Why? Because the Father had called him to that purpose, to die for sinners, to lay down his life and rise again. You know, if Jesus didn't endure that, guess what? There'd be, I'd have no reason to stand up here. There'd be no gospel. With no suffering, there is no salvation, guys. So I hope this draws our hearts to Christ more. Just the scope of what he endured to get to that cross and to die in our place. We think, what, what permits him to do this? To not commit any sin, to have no deceit in his mouth, to not revile, to not utter any threats. I mean, we understand that he is the Son of God, absolutely. But there's something, there's an example here that we don't want to miss. If I asked you the question, what was it that actually gave Jesus the strength, even though the Son of God, to endure these insults and not retaliate, to not sin in return, what would your answer be? What would you say? Sometimes we, it's something we often forget. The Holy Spirit! Do you realize that Jesus relied on the strength of the Holy Spirit to empower Him for ministry, but also to endure the insults of unbelievers? He is the ultimate example of what it means to depend on the strength of the Holy Spirit of God. Never forget that. Isaiah 61, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because the Lord anointed me to bring good news to the humble. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim release to captives and freedom to prisoners. Though the Son of God, still a man, still flesh and blood, He's still dependent on the Holy Spirit. You know, it's a pithy saying, it's on those inspirational uh, posters in, 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 in Christian bookstores. What, what does it say? It was not the nails that kept Jesus hanging on the cross, but his love for you and me. And while that may be partially true, what gave Jesus the strength to remain there committed to the mission that the Father gave him? The Holy Spirit! And that same Holy Spirit empowers us to suffer so that the gospel may continue to advance. The Holy Spirit strengthened Christ to suffer in our place, and the Holy Spirit strengthens us to suffer while proclaiming Christ. But this is Christ's character. It's His conduct. And even though we may be 
if we had sat at the foot of the cross, we're, we're going through this great epic story of redemption and we're waiting for him to finally vanquish his foe. But he doesn't do that, at least not from a human perspective. Instead, he endures it. But he endures it through the strength of the Holy Spirit and, and ultimately triumphs in his death and resurrection. Here's a third way. We have character, conduct, and now we have commitment. Jesus sets an example in the commitments that he makes. And this is very, I think this is very plain to us. It says he uttered no threats, but here's what he, so what he, it's contrasting very strongly what he didn't do with what he did do. So what wouldn't Jesus do and what does Jesus do? So here we go. But kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. So I love this word, but kept. So this was an ongoing pattern, right? He kept doing this when it came to affliction. Who did he entrust himself to? The one who judges righteously, that is the Father, as opposed to retaliation, as opposed to reviling in return, insult, or uttering threats. He trusts. This word entrusting, again, used in a, in a way that expresses Jesus' trust in the Father throughout his entire life and ministry. Okay. Now, look at your text again. If you have the New American Standard, it'll say, but kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. Now, in the Greek, himself is not there. So let's read it without, let's read it without the Greek. But kept entrusting to him who judges rightly. So if we are to fill in that blank, what is Jesus entrusting to the Father? That is a good example for us. Everything, right? Jesus kept entrusting everything. There was nothing that Jesus in his entire life and ministry kept to himself or held in unbelief or somehow doubted the Father's goodness in that. He entrusted everything. So there was no part of Christ's life where he did not perfectly commit and submit to the Father. This would include everything, himself, his own life, God's timing, God's providence, his entire ministry, even his death on the cross. Everything he committed to him who judges righteously. And of course, that is a very difficult thing. When men are acting unjustly, when unbelievers are acting unrighteously, sometimes when Christians are acting unrighteously, we desire justice. We desire the right to come about. We want vindication. But, what, but, but how does that express itself in a Christ-like manner? We entrust that, we entrust everything, the situation, our own lives, to Him who judges righteously. See, we're still growing spiritually. We aren't always going to judge things with perfect righteousness. That's why sometimes we, we fail in that regard, in, in how we respond to those who afflict us, right? So what's the best way? What is the only way? You entrust it to God because He always judges righteously 100% of the time, just like Christ did. He entrusted everything to the Father. Think of the things that Jesus went through. He was assailed by the devil. What did He do? He entrusted Himself to God's Word. It is written, when assailed by those who doubted Him, who doubted who He was, who doubted His power, what did He do? He trusted in God's power. When assailed by Pontius Pilate, what did he do there? He entrusted himself to God's authority. You would have no power if it had not been given to you from above. Even while hanging on the cross, he said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. See, everything. Think about the Garden of Gethsemane, right? 
Lord, if you will, let this cup pass for me. But not as I will, but as you will. I mean, if anyone had their priorities straight, it was Jesus. Not my will, but yours. There is the picture of a man, of a beloved man, the the Son of God entrusting himself in every way to the Father. And you think about that, if we could trust our life and even very death, knowing that it is all in God's hands, I truly believe we can trust him with anything. He holds everything by his power. And He cares for us, as we will see later on in this text. But everything Christ entrusted to God. So I would say, in the terms of Christian cliches, this is much more than letting go and letting God. It's much more than doing your best and letting God do the rest. No, this is understanding. Yeah, I know, right? That is, I, can't believe we, I can't believe we let that go unchecked. Um, this is understanding that even if God has to pry your cold, dead fingers off of wanting control over something, he'll do it because he has all the control and it's all in his hands. We don't have to give God, you realize God doesn't need your permission for anything. Letting go and letting God my eye. He has complete control. And the most important thing is he's not letting go of you. You belong to him. He has ownership over you and has complete control over your entire life and destiny and trajectory. He is there, present in His Holy Spirit, to guide, to comfort, and to strengthen. And everything is His anyway. So when we trust God, we follow the example of Jesus and trust Him with everything. All of our faculties are engaged. We trust Him in our thinking. We trust Him even in our hearts, even with our emotions. We trust Him with our will. We even trust Him with our bodies as a temple of the Holy Spirit, using our members as instruments of righteousness. That even though we may suffer on many different levels and occasions, there is nothing that we can endure that is unfamiliar to Christ. Seen it all, gone through it all, knows it all, and can keep us through it all. So we trust ourselves with everything to God, not a vague God of our own conjuring, but one who always judges righteously who will make things right in his but in his own time something we complain about in his own way something we also complain about and by his own wisdom and power but when we trust in him we are submitting ourselves to him here's a couple passages guys to keep in mind from the book of psalms psalm 11:7 for the lord is righteous he loves righteousness the upright will behold his face If the Lord loves righteousness, He's always going to do what is right. He's not going to betray something that He loves. He loves righteousness, and He will see it through. He will vindicate Himself and His people in His own time. Psalm 35, 24, Judge me, O Lord, according to your righteousness, and do not let them, who's them? The psalmist's enemies. Do not let them rejoice over me. Jeremiah 9.24, but let them who boast, boast of this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord who exercises loving kindness, justice, and righteousness on earth, for I delight in these things, declares the Lord. So if we are to boast in anything, we boast that we know God, but not just know God in a vague way, but in a very specific way. He exercises loyal love, justice, and righteousness. Now listen to this, Psalm 110. 
He will judge among the nations. He will fill them with corpses. He will shatter the chief man over a broad country. So ultimately, when he deals out justice to, to those who continue in unbelief, to his enemies, that end will be devastating. And we are thankful to him for that. And in the meantime, we can entrust ourselves to him, even though we know that suffering is at hand and can, and can be often prolonged. There is nothing that we endure, guys, that Jesus himself is, is somehow unfamiliar with. None of what we are enduring is strange to him. And he endured this all, laying himself down, going willfully to the cross to die in our place for our sins. And in doing so, what is he doing? Think about this. He's not merely, when he dies on the cross, he's not merely facing down the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the scribes, the elders, the Romans. He's facing down death itself. And by dying in our place, he takes death down with him. And what does he accomplish by that? This, bringing many sons to glory. That is, death-conquering resurrection life. So be thankful that Christ suffered in our place. When you are tempted to be doubting or thankless when you suffer, remember Christ your example and what he endured so that you are brought to glory. I am sure we would find that it is well worth it and that in this time the grace of God is more than sufficient for us to not only cleanse us from sin, but to help us continue to endure that suffering as we submit ultimately to him. So that is our calling and that is our conviction. Next Lord's Day, we will talk about our confidence and our comfort. So let's pray. Father, thank you again for our time in the Word this morning. May it bless your people. May we find, Lord, uh, joy in our calling. We are called to suffer righteously, to make great the name of Christ, to preach his gospel faithfully confident, Lord, fully assured that your kingdom will expand and that you will bring life to dead men. We thank you for the conviction that we have in your standard, that you have sent Christ not only as our substitute, but one who sets an example to follow in suffering and affliction. Let that, be a, let that standard be our conviction, that we look not to a standard of our own making, but the very example that Christ set for us. And Lord, it is tempting, we know, to revile in return, to utter threats, to take cheap shots. Even, Lord, to withdraw, perhaps to be dismissive and to not engage with the unbeliever anymore because we don't like the suffering. Perhaps we, we experience an, uh, uh, an ungodly uh, dislike toward them where our heart is unloving. We pray, Father, that you would help us repent from that, that we would, as Christ did to, to love those sinners, to love them enough to speak the truth to them that, Lord, as the gospel has brought life to us, would bring life to them. I mean, these are certainly challenging times. That is why we need your strength to truly live as free men, free men in Christ, walking righteously, being your holy people, and following Christ's example, knowing that uh, even though in this life we never completely live up to it perfectly, what matters is that Christ lived up to your standard perfectly. And by trusting in him, we are reckoned as if we had. We are thankful for that great gift. We are thankful for Christ our Savior. Help us to trust in him and to love him all the more.
In Jesus' name, amen.